0: part nine of the naval battle of eighteen twelve by theodore roosevelt this librivox recording is in the public domain part nine we will do far better to recollect that as much can be learned from reverses as from victories instead of flattering ourselves by saying the defeat was due to chance let us try to find out what the real cause was and then take care that it does not have an opportunity to act again. A little less rashness would have saved Lawrence's life and his frigate, while a little more audacity, on one occasion, would have made Commodore Chauncey famous forever. And whether a lesson is to be learned or not. A historian should remember that his profession is not that of panegyrist, The facts of the case unquestionably are that Captain Broke, in fair fight, within sight of the enemy's harbor, proved conqueror over a nominally equal and, in reality, slightly superior force, and that this is the only single-ship action of the war in which the victor was weaker in force than his opponent. So much can be gathered by reading only the American accounts. Moreover, accident had little or nothing to do with the gaining of the victory. The explanation is perfectly easy. Lawrence and Brooke were probably exactly equal in almost everything that goes to make up a first-class commander, but one had trained his crew for seven years, and the other was new to the ship, to the officers and to the men, and the last to each other. The Chesapeake's crew must have been of fine material or they would not have fought so well as they did so much for the american accounts on the other hand the capture of the chesapeake was and is held by many british historians to conclusively prove a good many different things such as that if the odds were anything like equal a british frigate could always whip an american that in a hand-to-hand conflict such would invariably be the case etc and as this was the only single-ship action of the war in which the victor was the inferior in force most british writers insist that it reflected more honour on them than all the frigate actions of eighteen twelve put together did on the americans these assertions can be best appreciated by reference to a victory won by the french in the year of the battle of the nile on the fourteenth of december seventeen ninety eight after two hours conflict the french twenty four gun corvette bayonnaise captured by boarding the english thirty two gun frigate abuscade according to james the abuscade Threw at a broadside two hundred sixty-two pounds of shot, and was manned by one hundred ninety men. While the Bayonnais threw one hundred fifty pounds, and had on board supernumeraries and passenger soldiers enough to make in all two hundred fifty men. According to the French historian rouvier footnote Histoire des Marines Francais sous la Republique. Par charles rouvier lieutenant de Vasseau, paris eighteen sixty eight and a footnote the broadside force was two hundred forty six pounds against eighty pounds according to trude footnote bataille navale and a footnote it was two hundred seventy pounds against one hundred twelve monsieur leon Guérin, in his voluminous but exceedingly prejudiced and one-sided work. Footnote, Histoire maritime de France, par Léon Guerin, historien, de la Marine, membre de la Légion d'honneur. Volume six, page 142, Paris 1852. and a footnote. Makes the difference even greater at any rate the english vessel was vastly the superior in force and was captured by boarding after a long and bloody conflict in which she lost forty-six and her antagonist over fifty men during all the wars waged with the republic and the empire no english vessel captured a french one as much superior to itself as the ambuscade was to the bayonets precisely as in the war of eighteen twelve no american vessel captured a british opponent as much superior to itself as the chesapeake was to the shannon yet no sensible man can help acknowledging in spite of these and a few other isolated instances that at that time the french were inferior to the english and the latter to the americans it is amusing to compare the french histories of the english with the english histories of the americans and to notice the similarity of the arguments they use to detract from their opponents fame of course i do not allude to such writers as lord howard douglas or admiral de la gravire but to men like william james and leon garin or even eau james is always recounting how american ships ran away from british ones and garin tells as many anecdotes of british ships who fled from french foes james reproaches the americans for adopting a parthian mode of warfare instead of bringing-to in a bold and becoming manner precisely the same reproaches are used by the french writers who assert that the English would not fight fairly, but acquired an advantage by maneuvering. James lays great stress on the American long guns. So does Lieutenant Rouvier on the British carronades. James always tells us how the Americans avoided the British ships when the crews of the latter demanded to be led aboard. Trude says the British always kept at long shot while the french sailors demand a grands cris, l'abordage. james says the americans hesitated to grapple with their foes unless they possessed a twofold superiority garin that the english never dared attack except when they possessed une superiority enorme the british sneer at the mighty dollar the french at the eternal guinea the former considered decatur's name as sunk to the level of porters or bainbridges the latter assert that the presumptuous nelson was inferior to any of the french admirals of the time preceding the republic says james the americans only fight well when they have the superiority of force on their side and lieutenant Ruvier never have the english vanquished us with an undoubted inferiority of force on june twelfth eighteen thirteen the small cutter surveyor of six twelve-pound carronades was lying in york river in the chesapeake under the command of mr william s travis her crew consisted of but fifteen men footnote letter of w s travis june sixteenth eighteen thirteen End of At nightfall she was attacked by the boats of the Narcissus frigate, containing about fifty men, under the command of Lieutenant John Creary footnote, James Volume six, page three hundred thirty four and a footnote. None of the carronades could be used, but Mr Travis made every preparation that he could for defence. The Americans waited till the British were within pistol shot before they opened their fire the latter dashed gallantly on however and at once carried the cutter but though brief the struggle was bloody five of the americans were wounded and of the british three were killed and seven wounded lieutenant creary considered his opponents to have shown so much bravery that he returned mr travis his sword with a letter as complimentary to him as it was creditable to the writer footnote the letter dated june thirteenth is as follows your gallant and desperate attempt to defend your vessel against more than double your number on the night of the twelfth instant excited such admiration on the part of your opponents as i have seldom witnessed and induced me to return your sword you had so nobly used in testimony of mine our poor fellows have suffered severely occasioned chiefly if not solely by the precautions you have taken to prevent surprise in short i am at a loss which to admire most the previous arrangement aboard the surveyor or the determined manner in which her deck was disputed inch by inch i am sir etc And as has been already mentioned the americans possessed a large force of gunboats at the beginning of the war. Some of these were fairly seaworthy vessels, of ninety tons burden, sloop- or schooner-rigged, and armed with one or two long heavy guns, and sometimes with several light carronades to repel boarders. Footnote. According to a letter from Captain U. G. Campbell in the Naval Archives Captain's Letters, 1812, Volume 2, Numbers, twenty-one and one ninety-two the crews were distributed as follows ten men and a boy to a long thirty-two seven men and a boy to a long nine and five men and a boy to a carronade exclusive of petty officers captain campbell complains of the scarcity of men and rather naively remarks that he is glad the marines have been withdrawn from the gunboats as this may make commanders of the latter keep a brighter lookout than formerly gunboats of this kind together with the few small cutters owned by the government were serviceable enough they were employed all along the shores of georgia and the carolinas and in long island sound in protecting the coasting trade by convoying parties of small vessels from one port To another and preventing them from being molested by the boats of any of the british frigates they also acted as checks upon the latter in their descents upon the towns and plantations occasionally capturing their boats and tenders and forcing them to be very cautious in their operations they were very useful in keeping privateers off the coast and capturing them when they came too far in the exploits of those on the southern coast will be mentioned as they occurred those in long island sound never came into collision with a foe except for a couple of slight skirmishes at very long range but in convoying little fleets of coasters and keeping at bay the man-of-war boats sent to molest them they were invaluable and they also kept the sound clear of hostile privateers many of the gunboats were much smaller than those just mentioned trusting mainly to their sweeps for motive power and each relying for offence on one long pivot gun a twelve or eighteen pounder in the chesapeake there was a quite a large number of these small galleys with a few of the larger kind and here it was thought that by acting together in flotillas the gunboats might in fine weather do considerable damage to the enemy's fleet by destroying detached vessels instead of confining themselves to the more humble tasks in which their brethren elsewhere were fairly successful at this period denmark having lost all her larger ships of war was confining herself purely to Gun Brigs These were stout little crafts with heavy guns, which, acting together and being handled with spirit and skill, had on several occasions in calm weather captured small British sloops, and had twice so injured frigates as to make their return to Great Britain necessary, while they themselves had frequently been the object of successful cutting-out expeditions congress hoped that our gunboats would do as well as the danish but for a variety of reasons they failed utterly in every serious attack that they made on a man-of-war and were worse than useless for all but the various subordinate employments above mentioned the main reason for this failure was in the gunboats themselves they were utterly useless except in perfectly calm weather for in any wind the heavy guns caused them to careen over so as to make it difficult to keep them right side up and impossible to fire even in smooth water they could not be fought at anchor requiring to be kept in position by means of sweeps and they were very unstable the recoil of the guns causing them to roll so as to make it difficult to aim with any accuracy after the first discharge, while a single shot hitting one put it hors de combat. This last event rarely happened, however, for they were not often handled with any approach to temerity, and on the contrary, usually made their attacks at a range that rendered it as impossible to inflict as to receive harm. It does not seem as if they were very well managed, but they were such ill-conditioned craft that the best officers might be pardoned for feeling uncomfortable in them. Their operations throughout the war offer a painfully ludicrous commentary on Jefferson's remarkable project of having our Navy composed exclusively of such craft. The first aggressive attempt made with the gunboats was characteristically futile. On June 20th, 15 of them, under captain tarbell attacked the junon thirty eight captain sanders then lying becalmed in hampton roads with the barossa thirty six and laurentinus twenty four near her the gunboats while still at very long range anchored and promptly drifted round so that they couldn't shoot then they got under way and began gradually to draw nearer to the junon her defence was very feeble after some hasty and ill-directed volleys she endeavoured to beat out of the way but meanwhile a slight breeze having sprung up the barossa captain sheriff approached near enough to take a hand in the affair and at once made it evident that she was a more dangerous foe than the Junon, though a lighter ship As soon as they felt the effects of the breeze, the gunboats became almost useless, and the Barossa's fire being animated and well-aimed, they withdrew. They had suffered nothing from the Junon, but during the short period she was engaged, the Barossa had crippled one boat and slightly damaged another. One man was killed and two wounded. The Barossa escaped unscathed and the Junon was but slightly injured. Of the combatants, the Barossa was the only one that came off with credit, the Junon behaving, if anything, rather worse than the gunboats. There was no longer any doubt as to the amount of reliance to be placed on the latter. Footnote. Though the flotilla men did nothing in the boats, they acted with the most stubborn bravery at the Battle of Bladensburg the british lieutenant gregg himself a spectator thus writes of their deeds on that occasion campaign at washington page 119 of the sailors however it would be injustice not to speak in terms which their conduct merits they were employed as gunners and not only did they serve their guns with a quickness and precision which astonished their assailants but they stood till some of them were actually bayoneted with fuses in their hands, nor was it till their leader was wounded and taken and they saw themselves deserted on all sides by the soldiers that they quitted the field. Certainly such men could not be accused of lack of courage. Something else is needed to account for the failure of the gunboat system. End of footnote on june twentieth eighteen thirteen a british force of three seventy fours one sixty four four frigates two sloops and three transports was anchored off craney island on the northwest side of this island was a battery of eighteen pounders to take charge of which captain casson commanding the naval forces at norfolk sent ashore one hundred sailors of the constellation under the command of lieutenants neal shubrick and sanders and fifty marines under lieutenant breckenbridge footnote letter of captain john casen june twenty third eighteen thirteen end of footnote on the morning of the twenty second they were attacked by a division of fifteen boats containing seven hundred men footnote james volume six page three hundred thirty seven end of footnote seamen marines chasseurs and soldiers of the 102nd regiment the whole under the command of captain Pechel of the san domingo seventy four captain hanchett led the attack in the diadem's launch the battery's guns were not fired till the british were close in when they opened with destructive effect while still some seventy yards from the guns the diadem's launch grounded and the attack was checked three of the boats were now sunk by shot but the water was so shallow that they remained above water and while the fighting was still at its height some of the constellation's crew headed by midshipman tatnal waded out and took possession of them footnote life of commodore josiah tatnal by charles c jones jr savannah eighteen seventy eight page seventeen and a footnote a few of their crew threw away their arms and came ashore with their captors others escaped to the remaining boats and immediately afterward the flotilla made off in disorder having lost ninety-one men the three captured barges were large strong boats one called the centipede being fifty feet long and more formidable than many of the American gun-vessels. The Constellation's men deserve great credit for their defense, but the British certainly did not attack with their usual obstinacy. When the foremost boats were sunk, the water was so shallow and the bottom so good that the Americans on shore, as just stated, at once waded out to them and if in the heat of the fight tatnall and his seamen could get out to the boats the seven hundred british ought to have been able to get in to the battery whose one hundred fifty defenders would then have stood no chance footnote james comments on this repulse as a defeat as discreditable to those that caused it as honourable to those that suffered in it unlike most other nations the americans in particular the british when engaged in expeditions of this nature always rest their hopes of success upon valor rather than on numbers these comments read particularly well when it is remembered that the assailants outnumbered the assailed in the proportion of five to one it is monotonous work to have to supplement a history by a running commentary on James's mistakes and inventions, but it is worth while to prove once for all the utter unreliability of the author, who is accepted in Great Britain as the great authority about the war. Still, James is no worse than his compeers in the American Coggeshall's History of Privateers. The misstatements are as gross, and the sneers in as poor taste. The British, instead of the Americans, being the objects. End of footnote. On July fourteenth, eighteen thirteen, the two small vessels Scorpion and Asp, the latter commanded by Mr. Sigourney, got under way from out of the Yeo Comico Creek. Footnote: Letter of Midshipman McClintock. July fifteenth, eighteen thirteen. End of footnote. And at ten a.m., discovered in chase the British brig-sloops Contest, Captain James Rattray and Mohawk, Captain Henry D. Bing. Footnote: James, Volume Six, Page three forty-three. End of footnote. The Scorpion beat up the Chesapeake, but the dull-sailing Asp had to re-enter the creek the two brigs anchored off the bar and hoisted out their boats under the command of lieutenant roger c curry whereupon the asp cut her cable and ran up the creek some distance here she was attacked by three boats which mr sigourney and his crew of twenty men with two light guns beat off but they were joined by two others and the five carried the asp giving no quarter mr sigourney and ten of his men were killed or wounded while the british also suffered heavily having four killed and seven including lieutenant curry wounded the surviving americans reached the shore rallied under midshipman h mcclintock second in command and when the british retired after setting the asp on fire at once boarded her put out the flames and Got her in fighting order, but they were not again molested. On June twenty-ninth, while the Junon thirty-eight, Captain Sanders, and Martin eighteen, Captain Senhouse were in Delaware Bay, the latter grounded on the outside of Crow's shoal. The frigate anchored within supporting distance, and while in this position the two ships were attacked by the american flotilla in those waters consisting of eight gunboats carrying each twenty-five men and one long thirty-two and two heavier block sloops footnote letter of lieutenant angus july thirtieth eighteen thirteen and of footnote commanded by lieutenant samuel angus the flotilla kept at such a distance that an hour's cannonading did no damage whatever to anybody, and during that time, gunboat number 121, sailing Master Sheed, drifted a mile and a half away from her consorts. Seeing this, the British made a dash at her. In seven boats, containing 140 men, led by Lieutenant Philip Westfall, Mr. Sheed anchored and made an obstinate defense, but at the first discharge the gun's pintle gave way and the next time it was fired the gun carriage was almost torn to pieces he kept up a spirited fire of small arms in reply to the boat carronades and musketry of the assailants but the latter advanced steadily and carried the gunboat by boarding seven of her people being wounded while seven of the british or killed and thirteen wounded footnote letter of Mr. Sheed August fifth eighteen thirteen and a footnote the defence of number one twenty one was very creditable but otherwise the honour of the day was certainly with the British whether because the gunboats were themselves so worthless or because they were not handled boldly enough. They did no damage even to the grounded sloop that would seem to have been at their mercy footnote the explanation possibly lies in the fact that the gunboats had worthless powder in the naval archives there is a letter from mr angus master's commandant letters eighteen thirteen number three see also number ninety one in which he says that the frigate's shot passed over them while theirs could not even reach the sloop he also encloses a copy of a paper signed by the other gunboat officers which runs we the officers of the vessel comprising the delaware flotilla protest against the powder as being unfit for service end of footnote on june eighteenth the american brig sloop argus commanded by lieutenant william henry allen late first of the united states sailed from new york for france with mr crawford minister for that country aboard and reached lorient on july eleventh having made one prize on the way on july fourteenth she again sailed and cruised in the chops of the channel capturing and burning ship after ship and creating the greatest consternation among the london merchants she then cruised along Cornwall and got into St. George's Channel, where the work of destruction went on. The labor was very severe and harassing, the men being able to get very little rest, footnote court of inquiry into loss of Argus, 1815, and of footnote. On the night of August 13th, a brig laden with wine from Porto was captured and burnt, and unluckily, many of the crew succeeded in getting at some of the cargo at five a m on the fourteenth a large brig of war was discovered standing down under a cloud of canvas footnote letter of lieutenant watson march second eighteen fifteen and a footnote this was the british brig sloop pelican captain john Fordyce maples which from information received at cork three days previous had been cruising especially after the argus and had at last found her st david's head wore east five leagues latitude fifty two degrees fifteen minutes north and five degrees fifty minutes west the small fine-lined american cruiser with her lofty masts and long spars could easily have escaped from her heavier antagonist but captain allen had no such intention and finding he could not get the weather gauge he shortened sail and ran easily along on the starboard tack while the pelican came down on him with the wind which was from the south nearly aft at six a.m the argus wore and fired her port guns within great distance the pelican responding with her starboard battery and the action began with great spirit on both sides footnote letter of captain maples to admiral thornborough august 14 1813 and footnote at 604 a round shot carried off captain allen's leg inflicting a mortal wound but he stayed on deck till he fainted from loss of blood soon the british fire carried away the main braces mainspring stay gaff and trysail mast of the argus the first lieutenant mr watson was wounded in the head by a grape-shot and carried below the second lieutenant mr U. H. allen no relation of the captain continued to fight the ship with great skill the pelican's fire continued very heavy the Argus losing her spirit-sail yard and most of the standing rigging on the port side of the foremast. At 6.14, Captain Maples bore up to pass astern of his antagonist, but Lieutenant Allen luffed into the wind and threw the main top-sail aback, getting into a beautiful raking position. Footnote letter of Lieutenant Watson. End of footnote had the men at the guns done their duty as well as those on the quarter-deck did theirs the issue of the fight would have been very different but as it was in spite of her favourable position the raking broadside of the argus did little damage two or three minutes afterward the argus lost the use of her after sails through having her preventer main braces and topsail tie shot away and fell off before the wind when the pelican at six eighteen passed her stern raking her heavily and then ranged up on her starboard quarter in a few minutes the wheel ropes and running rigging of every description was shot away and the argus became utterly unmanageable the pelican continued raking her with perfect impunity and at six thirty five passed her broadside and took a position on her starboard bow when at six forty five the brigs fell together and the british were in the act of boarding when the argus struck her colours footnote letter of captain maples End of footnote. at six forty five a m the pelican carried besides her regular armament two long sixes as stern chasers and her broadside weight of metal was thus footnote james volume six page three hundred and twenty end of footnote one six another six one twelve and eight thirty twos or two hundred and eighty pounds against the arguses one twelve and nine twenty fours or subtracting, as usual, 7% for light weight of metal, 210 pounds. The Pelican's crew consisted of but 116 men, according to the British account, though the American reports make it much larger. The Argus had started from New York with 137 men, but having manned and sent in several prizes, her crew amounted as near as can be ascertained to one hundred four mister low in his naval history published just after the event makes it but ninety-nine james makes it one hundred twenty-one as he placed the crew of the enterprise at one hundred twenty-five when it was really one hundred two that of the hornet at one hundred sixty-two instead of one thirty-five of the peacock at one eighty-five instead of one sixty-six of the nautilus at one o six instead of ninety-five etc etc It is safe to presume that he has overestimated it by at least twenty which brings the number pretty near to the American accounts. The Pelican lost but two men killed and five wounded. Captain Maples had a narrow escape, a spent grape shot striking him in the chest with some force, and then falling on the deck. One shot had passed through the bosun's and one through the carpenter's cabin. Her sides were filled with grape-shot, and her rigging and sails much injured. Her foremast, main topmast, and royal mast were slightly wounded, and two of her cannonades dismounted. The injuries of the Argus have already been detailed. Her hull and lower masts were also tolerably well cut up of her crew captain allen two midshipmen the carpenter and six seamen were killed or mortally wounded her first lieutenant and thirteen seamen severely and slightly wounded total ten killed and fourteen wounded in reckoning the comparative force i include the englishman's six-pound stern chaser which could not be fired in broadside with the rest of the guns because i include the argus's twelve pound bow chaser which also could not be fired in broadside as it was crowded into the bridle port james of course carefully includes the latter though leaving out the former comparison the argus two hundred ninety eight tons ten guns two hundred ten weight of metal one hundred four men 24 loss the pelican 467 tons 11 guns 280 weight of metal 116 men seven loss comparative force of the argus point eighty two comparative loss inflicted point twenty nine for the pelican comparative force of one point zero zero comparative loss inflicted one point zero zero of all the single-ship actions fought in the war this is the least creditable to the americans the odds in force it is true were against the argus about in the proportion of ten to eight but this is neither enough to account for the loss inflicted being as ten to three nor for her surrendering when she had been so little ill-used it was not even as if her antagonist had been an unusually fine vessel of her class the pelican did not do as well as either the frolic previously or the reindeer afterward though perhaps rather better than the avon penguin or peacock with a comparatively unmanageable antagonist in smooth water she ought to have sunk her in three-quarters of an hour but the pelican not having done particularly well merely makes the conduct of the americans look worse it is just the reverse of the chesapeake's case where paying the highest credit to the british we still thought the fight no discredit to us here we can indulge no such reflection the officers did well but the crew did not cooper says the enemy was so much heavier that it may be doubted whether the argus would have captured her antagonist under any ordinary circumstances this i doubt such a crew as the wasps or hornets probably would have been successful the trouble with the guns of the argus was not so much that they were too small as that they did not hit and this seems all the more incomprehensible when it is remembered that Captain Allen is the very man to whom Commodore Decatur, in his official letter, attributed the skillful gun practice of the crew of the frigate United States. Cooper says that the powder was bad, and it has also been said that the men of the Argus were over-fatigued and were drunk, in which case they ought not to have been brought into action, Besides unskilfulness, there is another serious count against the crew. Had the pelican been some distance from the Argus, and in a position where she could pour in her fire with perfect impunity to herself, when the surrender took place, it would have been more justifiable. But, on the contrary, the vessels were touching, and the British boarded just as the colors were hauled down it was certainly very disgraceful that the americans did not rally to repel them for they had still four-fifths of their number absolutely untouched they certainly ought to have succeeded for boarding is a difficult and dangerous experiment and if they had repulsed their antagonists they might in turn have carried the pelican so that in summing up the merits of this action it is fair to say that both sides showed skilful seamanship and unskilful gunnery, that the British fought bravely and that the Americans did not. It is somewhat interesting to compare this fight, where a weaker American sloop was taken by a stronger British one, with two or three others, where both the comparative force and the result, were reversed. Comparing it, therefore, with the actions between the Hornet and Peacock, British, the Wasp and Avon, the Peacock, American, and and Apervier, we get four actions, in one of which the first named, the British were victorious, and, in the other three, the Americans. Pelican, British, Comparative Force one point zero zero comparative loss inflicted 1.00% percent loss 0.06 the argus american comparative force 0.82 comparative loss inflicted 0.29% percent loss 0.23 the hornet american comparative force 1.00 comparative loss inflicted 1.00% percent loss 0.02 peacock british COMPARATIVE FORCE .83 COMPARATIVE LOSS INFLICTED .07 PERCENT LOSS .81 THE WASP AMERICAN COMPARATIVE FORCE 1.00 COMPARATIVE LOSS INFLICTED 1.00 PERCENT LOSS .02 THE AVON BRITISH COMPARATIVE FORCE .80 COMPARATIVE LOSS INFLICTED .07 percent loss point thirty three the peacock american comparative force one point zero zero comparative loss inflicted one point zero zero percent loss point oh one the apervier british comparative force point eight one comparative loss inflicted point oh eight percent loss point two zero it is thus seen that in these sloop actions the superiority of force on the side of the victor was each time about the same the argus made a much more effectual resistance than did either the peacock avon or Epervier, while the pelican did her work in poorer form than either of the victorious american sloops and on the other hand the resistance of the argus did not by any means show as much bravery as was shown in the defense of the Peacock or Avon, although rather more than in the case of the Epervier. This is the only action of the war where it is almost impossible to find out the cause of the inferiority of the beaten crew. In almost all other cases we find that one crew had been carefully drilled and so proved superior to a less trained antagonist. BUT IT IS INCREDIBLE THAT THE MAN, TO WHOSE EXERTIONS, WHEN FIRST LIEUTENANT OF THE STATE'S COMMODORE Decatur, ASCRIBES THE SKILLFULNESS OF THAT SHIP'S MEN, SHOULD HAVE NEGLECTED TO TRAIN HIS OWN CREW, AND THIS HAD THE REPUTATION OF BEING COMPOSED OF A FINE SET OF MEN. BAD POWDER WOULD NOT ACCOUNT FOR THE SURRENDER OF THE ARGUS WHEN SO LITTLE DAMAGED really seems as if the men must have been drunk or over-fatigued as has been so often asserted of course drunkenness would account for the defeat although not in the least altering its humiliating character et tu quoque is not much of an argument still it may be as well to call to mind here two engagements in which british sloops suffered much more discreditable defeats than the argus did the figures are taken from james as given by the french historians they make even a worse showing for the british a short time before our war the british brig carnation eighteen had been captured by boarding by the french brig palanure sixteen and the british brig alacrity eighteen had been captured also by boarding by the corvette a twenty the following was the comparative force etc of the combatants the carnation weight of metal two hundred sixty two pounds number of crew one hundred seventeen loss forty palonneur weight of metal one hundred seventy four pounds number of crew one hundred loss twenty alacrity weight of metal two hundred sixty two pounds number of crew one hundred loss eighteen a weight of metal two hundred sixty pounds number of crew one hundred thirty loss nineteen in spite of the pride the british take in their hand-to-hand prowess both of these ships were captured by boarding the carnation was captured by a much smaller force instead of by a much larger one as in the case of the argus and if The Argus gave up before she had suffered greatly. The alacrity surrendered when she had suffered still less. French historians asserted that the capture of the two Brigs proved that the French Valor could conquer British courage. And a similar opinion was very complacently expressed by British historians after the defeat of the Argus. All that the three combatants really proved was that in eight encounters between british and american sloops the americans were defeated once and in a far greater number of encounters between french and british sloops the british were defeated twice no one pretends that either navy was invincible the question is which side averaged best at the opening of the war we possessed several small brigs These had originally been fast, handy little schooners, each armed with twelve long sixes and with a crew of sixty men. As such, they were effective enough. But when afterward changed into brigs, each armed with a couple of extra guns and given forty additional men, they became too slow to run without becoming strong enough to fight. They carried far too many guns and men for their size and not enough to give them a chance with any respectable opponent and they were almost all ignominiously captured. The single exception was the brig enterprise. She managed to escape capture owing chiefly to good luck and once fought a victorious engagement thanks to the fact that the British possessed a class of vessels even worse than her own she was kept near the land and finally took up her station off the eastern coast, where she did good service in chasing away or capturing the various Nova Scotian or New Brunswick privateers, which were smaller and less formidable vessels than the privateers of the United States and not calculated for fighting. By crowding guns into her bridle ports and overmanning herself, the enterprise now under the command of lieutenant william Burroughs, mounted fourteen eighteen pound carronades and two long nines with one hundred two men on september fifth while standing along shore near penguin point a few miles to the eastward of portland maine she discovered at anchor inside a man-of-war brig footnote letter from lieutenant Edward R. McCall to Commodore Hull september fifth, eighteen thirteen, and a footnote, which proved to be HMS Boxer, Captain Samuel Blythe, of twelve carronades, eighteen pounders, and two long sixes, with but sixty six men aboard, twelve of her crew being absent. Footnote James Naval Occurrences two hundred and sixty four. The American accounts give the boxer 104 men On very insufficient grounds Similarly, James gives The Enterprise 123 men Each side will be Considered authority for its own Force and loss End footnote The boxer at once hoisted three British ensigns and bore up For the Enterprise Then standing in on the starboard Tack But when the two brigs were still Four miles apart, it fell calm at midday a breeze sprang up from the southwest giving the american the weather gauge but the latter manoeuvred for some time to windward to try the comparative rates of sailing of the vessels at three p m lieutenant burrows hoisted three ensigns shortened sail and edged away toward the enemy who came gallantly on captain blythe had nailed his colors to the mast telling his men they should never be struck while he had life in his body footnote naval chronicle volume thirty two page four hundred sixty two and a footnote both crews cheered loudly as they neared each other and at three fifteen the two brigs being on the starboard tack not a half pistol shot apart they opened fire the american using the port and the british the starboard battery Both broadsides were very destructive, each of the commanders falling at the very beginning of the action. Captain Blythe was struck by an 18-pound shot while he was standing on the quarterdeck. It passed completely through his body, shattering his left arm and killing him on the spot. The command thereupon devolved on Lieutenant David McCreary. At almost the same time, his equally gallant antagonist fell. Lieutenant Burroughs while encouraging his men laid hold of a gun-tackle fall to help the crew of a carronade run out the gun. In doing so he raised one leg against the bulwark when a canister shot struck his thigh, glancing into his body and inflicting a fearful wound. Footnote Cooper Naval History, Volume 2, Page 259 and a footnote. In spite of the pain, he refused to be carried below and lay on the deck, crying out that the colours must never be struck. Lieutenant Edward McCall now took command. At 3.30, the Enterprise ranged ahead, rounded two on the starboard tack, and raked the boxer with the starboard guns. At 3.35, the boxer lost her main topmast and topsail yard, but her crew still kept up the fight bravely with the exception of four men who deserted their quarters and were after court-martialed for cowardice footnote minutes of court-martial held aboard h m s surprise january eighth eighteen fourteen end of footnote the enterprise now set her foresail and took position on the enemy's starboard bow delivering raking fires and at three-forty-five the latter surrendered, when entirely unmanageable and defenceless. Lieutenant Burroughs would not go below until he had received the sword of his adversary when he exclaimed, I am satisfied, I die contented. Both brigs had suffered severely, especially the boxer, which had been hauled repeatedly, had three eighteen-pound shot through her foremast her top gallant forecastle almost carried away and several of her guns dismounted three men were killed and seventeen wounded four mortally the enterprise had been hulled by one round and many grape one eighteen pound ball had gone through her foremast and another through her mainmast and she was much cut up aloft two of her men were killed and ten wounded two of them her commander and midshipman Curvin waters mortally the british court-martial attributed the defeat of the boxer to a superiority in the enemy's force principally in the number of men as well as to the greater degree of skill in the direction of her fire and to the destructive effects of the first broadside but the main element was the superiority in force the difference in loss being very nearly proportional to it. Both sides fought with equal bravery and equal skill. This fact was appreciated by the victors, for at a naval dinner given in New York shortly afterward, one of the toasts offered was the crew of the Boxer, enemies by law but by gallantry brothers. The two commanders were both buried at Portland with all the honors of war the conduct of lieutenant burroughs needs no comment he was an officer greatly beloved and respected in the service captain blythe on the other hand had not only shown himself on many occasions to be a man of distinguished personal courage but was equally noted for his gentleness and humanity he had been one of captain lawrence's pallbearers, and but a month previous to his death had received a public note of thanks from an american colonel for an act of great kindness and courtesy footnote naval chronicle volume thirty two page four hundred sixty six and a footnote end of part nine